If you have your Bibles, turn to Nehemiah chapter 3. We have been working our way through the book of Nehemiah because as we're looking forward to what the Lord has for us here in 2013, as I've shared a number of occasions, how the church that owns this property has approached us about securing it, purchasing it, owning it. And as our minds have been reflecting on, dreaming about how the Lord could use us permanently planted here to expand uh, the work that's going on among the Jewish people and helping local churches to understand the Jewish roots of their faith. There's so much we can do and there's so much the Lord would have us to do. It seems like an impossible uh, an impossible thing, doesn't it? An impossible task. To think that God would take a small congregation like us, 100, 130 or so uh, individuals, to turn around an entire city or merely to impact an entire cultural group within the city. That just seems like an impossible task. And when we think of that, I can't help but think of Nehemiah, who was confronted with a similarly nearly impossible task. It's hard for us to really imagine what it was like for Nehemiah to hear of the walls broken down around the city of Jerusalem and then to begin a process whereby those walls would be built. I know for me, I would just, I wouldn't have a clue. Where do you start? How do you even lay a foundation? How do you make sure it's straight? How do you put stones on top of another in order for them to not fall off? I mean, did you ever try doing that, just putting stones? And the next thing you know, as it gets higher and higher, it gets less stable. And so for me, it would be an incredibly impossible task. And no doubt, perhaps for Nehemiah as well. Keep in mind, the walls around Jerusalem were about four feet thick. It was at least a mile and a half to two miles in circumference. And these walls had been down for 140 years. And Nehemiah will rebuild them in 52 days. I mean, that is nothing short of a miracle that God had done. But it was a miracle that the Lord had done through his people and through their devotion to the task and to the work God had called them to. In chapter 3, we get another glimpse into how Nehemiah went about securing and accomplishing this task. We saw, first of all, he devoted himself to God in prayer. We saw how he was one who understood the limitations of his abilities and his need for God to interfere or intervene in what he was doing. Chapter 3 also gets rather remarkable in terms of a lesson we might learn from Nehemiah as to how he did this. Now the work gets started. Now we get an introduction into how he accomplished the task. Now take a look at this chapter. It's filled. We're not going to read all of this because it's filled with names we can't pronounce. Now, if I had the Hebrew text, I could read the Hebrew names. But when it's transliterated into English, it's like, I'm not really sure how you pronounce some of these names. Look at verse 3. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah. You know, I mean, that's what I think it sounds like. It sounds pretty good. But if you look through all these names, it gets more and more difficult to read them. So we're not going to read through this entire chapter, but that's what Nehemiah does. He lists people over and over and over again who were involved in the process of rebuilding the walls. And some might come to this chapter and might even ignore it. 
You know, because it's just filled with names. It's sort of like the book of Numbers. At the beginning, you have genealogies, and you figure, well, I don't need to read about these fellas. I can't pronounce their names, alone. nothing is told about uh, of them to us. And then you move on to the next chapter. Sometimes we do that in valuable uh, genealogies, like the genealogy of Messiah in Matthew 1 and in Luke. Luke's account, we can't pronounce the names, and so we don't sort of dissect them. But in this passage, we have another glimpse into a very powerful uh, revelation to us from God's word. By the way, you know, it's not only uh, you and I who would miss past this chapter, but Charles Swindoll, fantastic Bible teacher, no, no doubt, right? In his commentary on the book of Nehemiah, he skips this chapter entirely. He doesn't even comment on it, you know. Um, and I could see why, you know, because you can't read the names, you know, how can you comment on it? But here's a kind of a neat thing. First of all, as Nehemiah begins to build these walls, we get a great um, sense or a great description of the geography of the city of Jerusalem. If you look at the very beginning of the chapter, it begins at the Sheep Gate. Now, you have to remember, the Jerusalem today is not the Jerusalem of the time of Nehemiah or the time of David. So you can't imagine what we oftentimes see when we see photographs of the city of Jerusalem. The Temple Mount, of course, was was secured by David when he bought the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite, right, the Hittite. And there on the threshing floor was where the temple would be built. Now, as you're looking at the temple, imagine you are on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is east of the city of Jerusalem. So as you're looking at the city of Jerusalem, you're facing west. Now, to the left side of the Temple Mount today is where the beginning of the threshing floor uh, began. That's the beginning of its geographical location. So Solomon builds, or at least secures, builds on the site that David purchased, which is in this direction. As we're looking at Jerusalem, there's the Dome of the Rock, there's the Alaska Mosque, the silver-domed one on our left, and we see the beautiful gate, the golden gate that's sealed up on facing us. We're on the Mount of Olives, looking west. It's on the eastern side of the Temple Mount. So that's how we're looking at it. But the city of David at the time of Nehemiah is in that direction. It goes down into a valley, and it is toward the south side of the Temple Mount today. Again, if we're looking at the Temple Mount, you've got the wall. And in front of the wall around the Temple Mount, there's a, uh, a grave site, right? There's a graveyard. And that graveyard is a Muslim graveyard today. The Muslims had placed their dead there precisely because the Jewish people were saying that the Messiah would enter the city of Jerusalem from the east. So they deliberately had a burial site put there because they thought the Messiah could not, would, not be, would be defiled by going through a graveyard. So therefore, the Messiah could never enter into Jerusalem. Now, if you go back up the Mount of Olives, that's where you guys are. As you're looking down the mountain there from the Mount of Olives, you're looking down into a valley. And that is the Kidron Valley or the Valley of Jehoshaphat. So you're looking down the valley and then up to Jerusalem. You've got the graveyard of the Muslims. You've got the golden gate that's sealed up. You've got the dome of the rock that's sitting there in the place where Abraham offered up his son. And you've got the Alaska Mosque to your left. Everybody good? Good. 
and the city of Jerusalem is down that way during the time of Nehemiah, during the time of David. So we come back up to the Mount of Olives and we look down back at the city of Jerusalem and there's a wall all the way around it and then the wall goes west. This corner where this wall is situated and where it makes its turn is what's known as the pinnacle of the temple, that southeastern corner of the wall around the Temple Mount. That's the place where Yeshua was taken and he was told to jump by the evil one, and if he did jump, then the angels would catch him so that he wouldn't uh, dash his feet against the stone. In the time of Messiah, that wall was about 180, 200 feet tall. Today, it's about 95 feet tall because things have been filled in due to earthquakes and other uh, sundry experiences. So we're looking at the city of Jerusalem, and the wall of Nehemiah is going to go in this direction leading up to the Temple Mount. The Pool of Siloam was in the old city of David. The Hezekiah's Tunnel was in the old city of David. Nehemiah is going to build those, that wall around that city. Now, the Sheep Gate, and this is why I'm trying to give you a little of this geographical thing. The Sheep Gate, found in verse 1, is on the, from the city's perspective, it would be on the north the north side of the city of David. From your perspective, it leads right up to the Temple Mount. That's where the Sheep Gate was. It was the closest entrance to the Temple Mount. When you look at Nehemiah chapter 3, you'll see that when the building starts taking place, it begins here by the temple, and then he goes around the city of Jerusalem, and it ends up, if you look at the last verses, right back at the Temple Mount. So Nehemiah is giving us a description circling the old city of David from where the temple started or the temple mount where you would enter to the temple and then around. And so that's the geographical structure. Now, when he begins to describe what takes place, the first thing Nehemiah does in order to tackle this impossible task is he breaks down the task into manageable parts. So that's a good lesson to learn, isn't it? When faced with a task that seems totally impossible, but one that God is calling us to, what one ought to do is to break down this challenge into smaller parts that can be managed. That's what Nehemiah does. He gets a crew working on a section of the wall here by the temple. Then he gets a crew working on this section. Then he gets another crew working on section to section from gate to gate so that they're all working at different places on the wall as it circles around Jerusalem. So he breaks down what seems impossible into possible tasks and manageable tasks. The second thing that he does that's also interesting is that those that are working at various parts along the wall are working in those parts where they live. If you read chapter 3, you'll see it says such and such was working on the wall outside his house. Such and such was working outside the wall by his house. The priests are working on the gates and the walls that are around the temple. So not only does he break down the parts into its manageable parts or individual sections, but then he also has those who are working on it are in closest proximity to where they live and where they have a greater investment. They know that if the enemy attacks here, 
Well, I've got to do a good job on the wall if I don't want the enemy to get through, because if he gets through, it's my house that's going to get attacked. So it's a pretty wise thing, isn't it? I know that these guys who live here are going to do a, a good job, the best job they can, because the risk is very great. Because if we just do a lousy job here, the enemy is going to break through and it's my house on the other side. Now, if I was working at that part of the wall where Mitch's house was, I might work really quick. You know, so I don't have to carry all these stones. After all, it's only Mitch's house. But if it's my house, I'm making sure those stones are exactly the right weight, the size, and whatever is holding them all together is being held well, you know. So he breaks it down into manageable parts. Then he has those that have the most to gain or to lose by that part of the wall being either strong or weak to build at that point. The third thing that Nehemiah does is that he elicits everyone's help. You read through this chapter, you read of people who are of varied backgrounds. First of all, he tells us priests were working on the wall. Now, if I was one of the priests, I would say, look, you know, I've got to devote myself to prayer, study of the word. I don't have time to be lifting heavy stones. It's not been a part of my background. There are others here, big dudes, you know, big guys that are really strong. The other day when I was teaching up at Santa Clarita, Fernando, you know, Fernando Real, you know, Fernando, he's a big guy. Doesn't seem that big, you know, at first glance, but he's a good sized guy. And he's like a cattle rustler, you know? He's a, a real cowboy. I mean, they really do exist. They're not just on television, you know? I mean, he's a real cowboy, and the guy is uh, oftentimes competing in roping cattle and calves. So he said, Gary, you got to come up and you got to see this. I said, Jewish people don't do that, <laughs> you know? Jewish people do not rustle calves. He said, we got three Jewish guys that do this thing. I said, come on, you know. He said, no, three Jewish guys. And he started telling me about them. So I thought, okay, maybe I should go and see this because that would be, you know, really remarkable to see. But anyway, Fernando, I said to him, if you're going to be rustling cattle, you've got to be like a strong guy, no? And he goes like this, yeah. And so I go, and it's like iron. His arm was like, I said, wow, <laughs> you know. He was like this strong dude. I would have said, you know, I'm a priest. I don't carry stuff, you know. So I've got to devote myself to prayer and to study the word. I'll encourage you, you know. But somebody else build. But no, in Nehemiah chapter 3, you've got a bunch of priests who are engaged in the work. There's also some individuals I thought of Dan, because I would not hire Dan to work on a wall outside my house, but it does say, it does say that there were goldsmiths and individuals that worked with jewels. There are individuals that were perfume makers. Now, these people have like delicate hands and fingers and stuff. You know, they're handing like precious gems. And they've, I don't know what you do in making perfumes. But these men that were engaged in these crafts, members of these guilds, put themselves to work with, in hard labor. Then there were guys who were merchants. They're just business people, Chuck. You know, they're just business guys. And there they were, carrying stones and putting them all into the side. I mean, it's like every imaginable vocation is represented in Nehemiah chapter 3. So chapter 3 tells us how he did it. He broke down this impossible task into manageable parts. He then put people on the walls 
in those areas where they were most concerned to be engaged in because their homes were right there. He then elicited everybody. It was sort of like I remember, you know Israel Cohen? When I used to do evangelism with Israel on the streets of New York or Boston, wherever we were, the line was we'd be handing out tracts. Everyone gets one. No one gets one. No one gets left out. Everyone gets one. No one gets left out. And if you're in Wall Street around 12 o'clock, you know, like 50,000 tracts are handed out in five minutes. You know, you just, everyone gets one. No one gets left out. You know, you're passing them all over the place. Well, that's what Nehemiah was like. Everybody gets involved. No one gets left out. It doesn't matter what your background is, what your skill is. Everyone was engaged in building the wall. And here's another interesting thing. There are people who were engaged who lived far away. You read through the cities, and we don't have time to go through them all, but one such city is Jericho. Do you know how far away Jericho is from Jerusalem? It may not be that far in terms of miles, I think it's something like 10 or 15 miles, something like that, from the city of Jerusalem. I could be off some, but down to the Dead Sea. But what makes it so tough is that Jerusalem is up on a mountain and Jericho is in the lowest place in the world. Not just in Israel, in the entire world. It's the lowest place on earth, 1,500 feet below sea level. So these guys are marching up to Jerusalem, you know? And then they're saying, give me some stones, man, to put onto the walls. So these guys came from a long distance and they had no investment in it whatsoever in terms of personal benefit. They're gonna build the wall around Jerusalem that has nothing whatsoever to do with Jericho. But yet there they were, devoted to their land, to their people, to Nehemiah, to one another. So what did Nehemiah do? He broke down the wall into manageable parts. He then saw that the people worked in those areas that were most pertinent to them and to their needs and to their concerns. He saw that everyone, no matter what their vocational background, what their skill level was, was involved. It did not matter what their geographical place was. Everyone was invited and everyone participated. There's only one group of people who did not participate, we're told. I think it's around verse four or so. It is the noblemen of Tekoa, you know? Now, I was about to say something. I'm a little cautious in saying it, so I'll say it this way. These are the guys that drove the Bentleys. No one here is Bentleys, right, (laughs) you know? These are the guys that were a little too high up in their pride to get involved with that kind of lowly work, you know? This was beneath them. But you know what's interesting? Nehemiah completely ignores them. You know, even though there's this group of guys that say, you know, we get around with those double humped camels, not the single ones, you know, and we do not get our hands dirty. Nehemiah didn't try to convince them to get their hands dirty. He said, you just have no part in what will transpire. I like that about Nehemiah. He says, I've got a work to do and I will not come down. And those that are willing to join with him get the work done in 52 days. And here's the last thing that strikes me about this chapter. Nehemiah is ready to celebrate and honor everyone that participates. Their names made it into the book, (laughs) you know? Their names are there. We can't pronounce them, and we have no idea who they are. 
But there they are mentioned. And here we are over 2,000 years later or so. My math may be all off. I don't know. But some tw- over 2,000 years. And here we are talking about these guys. Talking about what they did for a living. Where they lived. Where they served God. What they accomplished. And Nehemiah tells us those things about them in celebration. I can, I can only imagine honoring what they've done. There's only one person he leaves out, and that's Nehemiah. We don't read of him at all in the chapter, but he's the guy behind the scenes that's putting it all together. How different that is than Nebuchadnezzar, right? We've studied about him in the book of Daniel, who said, look what all my hands have accomplished. Look what I've done here in Babylon and made it the greatest city and nation uh, on the face of the earth. And his pride led to his, da- led to his downfall. On the other hand, here's a man like Nehemiah, who never mentions himself in the accomplishing of the task. And yet, we read of his accomplishment, how he rebuilt the walls, and how we celebrate what he did. So as we set our hands to the building process here of Beth Ariel, a foundation has been laid, and now we're building upon it. You know, it reminds me of sort of what Paul talks about in the Brit HaDashah in the New Covenant Scriptures, where he says, you know, the foundation of the believers is the apostles and prophets, and then upon them are the teachers and all those that have come afterwards that are building on the, on the foundation that was laid by the apostles and prophets, and Yeshua himself being the cornerstone. So we're on this wall of service to God. You know, we're on this wall somewhere. Messiah is the cornerstone. The apostles and prophets are the foundation. Like Nehemiah, we keep building up the wall. And every one of us needs to be engaged in the task. Like Nehemiah, and we have a great task before us, an impossible task to reach out to our community, to reach the lost sheep of the house of Israel, as was prayed earlier to encourage and educate the local churches in our community about the full gospel, you know, the Jewish roots of the good news. That's what I mean about the full gospel. That we understand the Jewish foundation upon which our faith rests so that we can be better equipped to share our faith with the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but in addition to that, to better understand our faith and thereby live our faith out. That's an incredible task that we have to bring the good news to the lost sheep, to bring the Jewish foundations of that good news to the local churches in our midst. Thirdly, to build up one another. We have the task of discipling, go into all the world, and this is the command, make disciples of all nations. It's not enough to just hold services, not enough just to be worshiping God. We need to be making, crafting, molding disciples who walk in the image of our master. That's our challenge, an impossible task, no doubt. But if we break it down into bite-sized pieces, manageable pieces, where all of us are involved, no matter what our skills No matter where we live, if we get ourselves in the wall where we are most concerned about, where we take personal pride and concern for, where God has gifted us and enabled us and equipped us to serve as we should, 
we will find ourselves doing exactly what I said. We will find ourselves reaching the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We will find ourselves educating the local churches. We could transform many of the local churches in their whole way of thinking. I just received an email from an old, 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 old dear friends of ours from our ministry back in Massachusetts. And they were part of our, when they wrote, uh, he said, remember me, Gary, I was one of your shamashim, one of our elders at the Messianic congregation we had planted in Massachusetts. They had moved from Massachusetts down to Florida, and we haven't seen them in maybe 30-some-odd years. The middle of the night, Karen is the wife's name, Roger is the husband. Karen woke up in the middle of the night hearing my name. And so the next morning, she went on site and Googled it, and she learned of Beth Ariel. And she was overjoyed to hear how Mary Lou and I were involved in a Messianic congregation here in Los Angeles. And she began to pray for our ministry. She began to listen to the Life of Messiah series that we have on tape. And so now she's using it as her devotionals, her devotions each day. She's mailed out our site and links to the same devotional to everyone on her, on her list. And she was telling me that when she settled in Florida for a number of years, she couldn't find a fellowship where she would worship. She said it was really no excuse, but I just couldn't find what I was looking for after being a part of Messianic Congregation. And so she said that finally she went into this Baptist church, and there the fellow was talking about the Jewish roots of the faith. She began to feel really fulfilled in what she was now experiencing, and now they attend that church on a regular basis, and the individual had introduced her, one of the pastors there, to John Fisher, who is a major figure and writer and author in the Messianic movement. So there are those in the local churches that are particularly desirous of learning more about the Jewish roots. Many, like our new members, have expressed it was that that led them here to Beth Ariel, faithfulness to our Messiah, faithfulness to the Word of God, and interest in the Jewish roots of our faith. And thus, this is where I want to be, they said. Well, as we take the good news to local churches, we could revolutionize the teachings that go on there, revolutionize the preaching from the pulpits, revolutionize their impact on the communities they are seeking to reach. It seems like a monumental task. You've got to be kidding. You really think we can make that kind of a change and impact on other pastors in the area? I really do. I've seen it happen. We've all seen it happen in many respects. But it will take us all to sort of sit down and say, how can we break this task up so that we can all have a part in it where we are strong? And how can we undergird one another and then, as we do so, look forward to what God will do in conclusion which we will celebrate. And we'll celebrate what each one of us have done to make the good news of Messiah more clearly known in our community and more faithfully lived out in our lives and in our midst and in our family. An impossible task, it appears, doesn't it? But it is the challenge the Lord has placed before us. And if it was impossible, the Lord wouldn't lead us to do it but it's precisely because he will enable us to do it that it will come to pass and we'll see it happen. In closing, turn with me to Ephesians 
chapter 4. And so Paul, Paul writes, looking at chapter 4, look at verse 7. He says, to each one of us, grace has been given as Messiah has apportioned it. Every one of us has experienced God's grace, and every one of us has been granted gifts, abilities, and talents that have been given as the Lord Messiah has apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and he gave gifts to men. Then he goes on to say, verse 11, it was he who gave some. These are the gifts that he has given. Notice that these are not gifts. uh, The gifts that he's given are people. Look at verse 11. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be proclaimers of the good news, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Messiah may be built up until we all reach the unity of the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Messiah. Then we'll no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind and teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up unto him who is the head, that is the Messiah. From him, the whole body is joined and held together by every support, supporting ligament, so that we grow and build ourselves up in love as each part does its work. That's what Nehemiah understood. Growth comes through service. And by each one of us doing the part that God has given us the grace and apportioned us to do so that the work goes forward and that the ministry is effective and that the lives of other people are transformed. Well, let's pray. Our God and Father, we are grateful to be called your children and to be known as your people. We thank you, Father, for the blessings you have bestowed upon Beth Ariel. We thank you for our facility here and where we can worship and where we can serve, and where we can reach out, and where we can minister to our families and young people as well as old. We thank you for the challenge, the prospect of owning this piece of property and it being our permanent residence, if indeed that is your calling and will upon our lives. We thank you, Father, for the resources that you have entrusted to us the generosity of individuals who give financially, generously in support of our work. We thank you, Father, for the gifts that each and, in, each and every individual brings. May we be diligent in utilizing them in service to one another. We thank you, Father, for the community we are located in, 600,000-plus Jewish people, Father, what a wonderful part of the harvest field you have given us to work in. May we we be diligent 
in seeing that the Jewish people hear the good news from our lips as we share with them what you have provided for all people. And so, Lord, we commend our congregation, our families, our people unto you. We pray that you would help us to serve you in the fullness of our strength and in the fullness of the strength of Messiah who dwells within us. May you guide us, may you lead us, may you endow us with wisdom to understand how we ought to proceed and how we can coordinate and organize all of the gifts and individuals that are part of our body. And then, Father, may we utilize them for the proclamation of the good news. And may we see many more individuals follow you and to walk in your ways and to have the hope of eternal life in their hearts. And so, Father, we pray these things in Yeshua's name. Amen.